It talks about the four things on earth that are small, uh, yet they are extremely wise. Just something so amazing. And it says the ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Connies, uh, they're like um, hamsters, that kind of that looking kind of creature, are little, small, and they are, have a little power, yet they make their homes in the crags, like very steep, uh, uh, rocky uh, places. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. The lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palace. Whole point of this is this, is that, uh, you know, we as a church, uh, sometimes we look for something amazing, uh, a vision, amazing uh, leaders. But uh, what is amazing is that we as uh, just simple-minded people, we can together advance, and we can even be found in a place such as a church, the palace, for his glory. One thing that I want to mention about among these uh, few things that is amazing, little things of the creature, is also the bees. They never bee. The bees like buzz around, like we don't want to be around them. But you know what they produce? They produce eternity. Did you know that? The honey that we eat, it lasts basically forever. A thousand years? What kind of organic food do you know? that lasts that long. Any organic food, within a day or two, they begin to stink. But honey is very, very organic. It's a contrary to what we understand as Mother Nature. But the bee produces that something that's eternal. It is so, so, like, to me, it's a biblical. It's what we believe, you know, the life in Jesus, eternal. And, and the bees shows us that. Well, talking about that, the gentleman that who is going to speak to us today is one of us. It's not really the guest, right? It is guest because it's his first time speaking to us in this context. But it's one of us. And he wrote this book called Be Parable. And interesting, he, made, he titled, uh, Read Any Good Books Lately? Well, this is certainly one of them. He didn't tell me to read this book, but I don't know whether he was going to do it or not. It's a Be Parable. I read the whole, read the whole thing. This is, as, as a Christian... To, for us to be equipped how to run an organization, how to do uh, leadership, or how to do volunteer. It is just also amazing. And in, at the end, what it produces is something that's eternal, a honey that lasts for thousands of years beyond what we can imagine. So that's so much for the commercial. But I do want to introduce uh, Dave. Dave has been a good friend of ours. has been attending our church for some time. I was just looking at his background. You know what he has? He has a bachelor's degree in nuclear engineering. That like, sounds like a rocket scientist to me, even though I kind of studied engineering a bit. He's a, he's a nuclear scientist and worked for United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission for over 23 years. And about 10 uh, some years ago, uh, he had a calling to go to a biblical theological seminary and received his master's degree in arts in New Testament. So here it is, David, and uh, may God use you today. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that introduction, and thank you for the opportunity to speak from your pulpit. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's a 
truly is an honor and a privilege to stand before you today. Um, today's title is called, Read Any Good Books Lately? And you probably have some idea where this is going. I'm hoping that I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak. But before I talk about Hebrews 4.12, I just kind of want to take you on a little verbal journey and uh, give you some information and stuff to think about. George Barna, who heads a market research firm that specializes in studying the religious behaviors and beliefs of Americans, pulled together some information, and it's about uh, the biblical knowledge that Americans have. And his first group of set of data, it should be up on this slide, is regarding Wheaton College students, a freshman class. I don't know which class it was. But Wheaton College, if you know, is a very well-known, well-respected Christian school. And the, here's the statistics. One-third could not put the following in order. Abraham, the Old Testament prophets, the death of Christ, and Pentecost. One-third could not identify Matthew as an apostle among a list of New Testament names. And when asked to locate the biblical books applying a given story, one-third could not find Paul's travels in Acts. One-half did not know that the Passover occurred in the book of Exodus. And believe it or not, one-half could not find the Christmas story. Now, this may sound like trivia, but a lack of biblical knowledge can lead to very tragic results. Barna goes on to do some studies um, of some mainline Protestant denominations, and here's what he found. Only one-third of these mainline Protestant church members believe that Jesus was sinless. Only 34% believe that the Bible is totally accurate. Only 27% agree that works do not merit salvation, only faith. And only 20% believe that Satan is real. Barna also looked at non-denominational churches such as our own. And here's what he found. The numbers get a little better. 48% believe that Satan is real. 60% agree that works do not merit salvation, only faith does. 70% believe that the Bible is totally accurate. And believe it or not, 20% of evangelical Christians believe that there are many ways to get to heaven. I just want to stop here before I go any further and just put out a little caution. If you claim to be a Christian, and if you believe that good works will get you to heaven, if you believe that Jesus was a sinner like you and I, or if you believe that Jesus was just one of many ways to get to heaven, then I humbly and gently but firmly want to state that you are not following the Jesus of the Bible. He did not give us that option. Another statistic that Barna pulled together is kind of a summary statement. He says, less than 10% of believers possess a biblical worldview as the basis for his or her decision-making. So if you flip that statistic, over 90% of believers make daily decisions and live their lives based on guidance other than the Bible. So in essence, the general body of believers in this country is the way they live their lives is no different than the way non-believers. And there's really, that kind of explains why the church has been so impotent in trying to have an impact on the world because the world looks at us and we have nothing, it appears that we have nothing to offer them. So where's, why is this ignorance uh, regarding the, uh, biblical knowledge? 
it just really boils down to the simple fact that we're ignorant because the church in general is ignorant because we just don't read it. A recent Lifeway research study found that of those who, and this is who regularly attend church, only 40% read the Bible more than once a week. About 40% read their Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. And 20% of churchgoers say that they never read the Bible. All right, let me read a story of a couple of guys who did read the Bible, and they took it very seriously. I'm going to try to keep myself together. This story always chokes me up. But In 1950, the American Bible Society published a, an article that was written by a gentleman named Clarence Hall. Clarence Hall was a soldier during World War II that was part of the landing invasion of Okinawa. And he came across an island, or a village called Shimabuki. And this is what he writes about this village. He said it was an obscure little community of only about a few hundred native Okinawans. Thirty years before, an American missionary had stopped here. He hadn't stayed long, just long enough to make a couple of converts, leave them a Bible, and then go on. One of the converts was Soshi, and, his other, and the other was his brother, Mojon. Since the time of that missionary's visit, they had seen no other missionary and had no contact with any other Christian person or group. But in those 30 years, Soshi and Mojon made the Bible come alive. Picking their way through the pages, they found not only an inspiring person on whom to pattern a life, but sound precepts on which to base a society. Aflame with their discovery, they taught the other villagers until every man, woman, and child in Shimabuki was a Christian. Soshi became the headman of the village, and his brother Mojon became the chief teacher. In Mojon's school, the Bible was read daily. To Soshi's village government, the Bible's precepts were law. Under the impact of this book, pagan things had fallen away. In their place during these 30 years, there had developed a Christian democracy at its purest. Then came World War II, the Japanese occupation, and finally the American army storming across the island. Little Shimabuki was directly in their path and took some severe shelling. When the advanced patrols swept up to the village, the GIs, their guns leveled, stopped in their tracks as two little old men stepped forth, bowed low, and began to speak. An interpreter explained that the old men were welcoming them as fellow Christians. They remembered that their missionary had come from America, so although these American soldiers seemed to approach things a little differently, the two men were overjoyed to see them. The GI's reaction was typical. Flabbergasted, they sent for the chaplain. The chaplain came and with him officers of the intelligence service. They toured the village and were astonished at what they saw. The spotlessly clean homes and streets, the high level of health, happiness, and intelligence prosperity of the village of Shimabuki. They had seen many other villages on Okinawa, villages of unbelievable poverty, ignorance, and filth. In comparison to the Shimabuki, shone like a diamond on a dung heap. Soshi and Mojon observed the Americans' amazement, but mistook it for disappointment. They bowed humbly and said, We are sorry if we seem to be a backward people. We have, sirs, tried to the best of our ability to follow the Bible and live like Jesus. Perhaps you could show us how. Clarence Hall went on to say, 
I strolled through Shimabuki one day with a tough old army sergeant. As we walked, he turned to me and whispered, I can't figure it, this kind of people coming out of a Bible and a couple of old guys who want to live like Jesus. Then the sergeant added, maybe we've been using the wrong weapons. It just takes a little faith. Why don't we read the Bible? I'll go quickly through a couple of reasons, several reasons. The biggest one probably is people claim that they're too busy. That's really another way of saying we have misplaced or missing priorities. Somebody wisely said, you schedule what is important to you. Some say they don't read the Bible because it's too difficult. Well, welcome to the club. I can testify as a seminary grad. I scratch my head many times when I read it. My humble suggestion is get yourself a good study Bible. It'll help fill in a lot of the blanks. But take heart. There's a verse. Uh, I call it my run to mama verse. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. And it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. And I think what that verse is saying is that there are some things that are going to be very straightforward and easy to understand. They may not be easy to do, but they're easy to understand. But there are some things that are going to be beyond our comprehension and understanding, and we just have to trust God. Some people don't read the Bible because of overconfidence. Maybe they've attended church their whole life, going to Sunday school, Bible school, uh, attended retreats and conferences. Maybe they've gotten some kind of uh, Christian certificate in, in Bible study. Maybe they've even read the Bible through once from cover to cover. But the sad fact is that many people are overconfident. They think they know more about the Bible than they do. And one of the statistics that I found during this, preparing for this message is when asked what was the most common verse among uh, believers, the answer was that God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible. So be careful about being overconfident. Most professions have retraining programs, requalification programs, proficiency training. We as Christians should also be involved in keeping ourselves current and fluent in what the Bible says. The final reason, people are afraid. They're afraid of what they might find if they read it. They might be afraid of the changes that they're going to have to do in their life. So in order to avoid being a hypocrite, they don't read it, which I respect them for that. However, the truth is, whether you read this book or not, we're all going to be judged by the truths that it contains. Why should we read the Bible? There's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about the benefits of the Bible. I'll just give you a few. Moses told the Israelites after he'd gone through Deuteronomy and given them the law, he said, For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. There's not much more important than life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all, according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. The psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible gives us guidance. There are many, many general principles in there that can help us stay on the right tracks. It may not tell you who you're going to marry or what job to take or where you're going to live, but if you live moment by moment, 
being obedient to the general principles, you will be in a position, a much better position, to make those more critical decisions. Paul told the Cephalonians, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. God's word mixed with faith will produce of an effect. And 2 Timothy says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What are we being equipped for? We're not being equipped to advance our agenda or our kingdom. We're being equipped to advance God's kingdom. Some commands to read the Bible. Again, there, there's others I could have used. Moses, again, he told the, the Israelites, he said, Every seven years... <laughs> Uh, at the Feast of Booths, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. In 1 Timothy, Paul's told him, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scriptures, to exhortation and teaching. So, Carl, thank you for publicly reading the, the scriptures to us every week. And Peter tells us, Like newborn babes, long for the milk, pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. He's not talking about the milk of the word versus the meat of the word, or, or elementary things versus more complex things. He's talking about just as babies long for their mother's milk, as babies long for food. That's how we're supposed to long for God's word. All right, it took you on that long, long journey to, to get to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. If you read that verse, it sounds like a summary statement. Um... And also, it, um, sorry, I got myself mixed up. This, when you look at the context of this verse, like I said, it sounds like a summary state. When you look at the verses around it, it doesn't say anything really about the merits of reading the Bible like I just did for you. It kind of like stands out there all by itself, and it appears just to hang out there. And... One of the things I wanted to go talk about this verse is that, you know, why did, why is it here? Because I read many commentaries on this verse, and none of, they all talked about the contents of this verse, but none of them talked about the context. In other words, why does it show up where it, it did? So what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about that, and then hopefully bring it around to an application at the end. But one of the key things to do is to step back here and look. The whole book of Hebrews was written to first century Jewish believers. The first Christians were actually Jews who converted, of course. And they were being persecuted. They were getting hit at least on two fronts. One by the Roman Empire, because the Romans did not recognize Christianity as an officially accepted religion within the empire. They recognized Judaism, but they did not recognize Christianity. So the government was leaning on these uh, believers and also... The Jews who remained followers of Judaism were also pressuring these people, accusing them of forsaking Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, and were accusing them of blasphemy. And I'm sure that that divided communities and families. So these believers were being pressed, and to the point that uh, the writer, they're not sure who wrote Hebrews, felt it necessary to write this book. Because this book, Hebrews, is essentially an apologetics for these Jewish believers as to why they should continue to follow Jesus. So having said that, okay, what, why is this verse here? What's, what's the little history of it? If you look at this verse, it is the 63rd verse into the book. 
And if you go back for what was starting at chapter 1, verse 1, there are 25 other verses from the Old Testament that the writer pulled in to Hebrews chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. So essentially 40% of what he has written prior is from the Old Testament. The first two chapters in Hebrews talk about uh, the reference, uh, scripture references that point to Jesus is the promised one. And in Hebrews 3 and 4, the verses that he uses from the Old Testament, they talk about the Israelites coming out of Egypt when Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And if you remember, that generation never made it into the promised land. They never made it into God's rest because of rebellion, because of disobedience, and ultimately because of unbelief. They did not make it into the promised land. So, recapping, even though the writer, when he wrote this, the Word of God is active and living and sharper than a two-edged sword, he, he was using everything that he had written prior to that. That was what he was summing up, not just the immediate context, because he knew the power that God's Word would have on a person's life. He says the Word of God is living. Simply stated, it's not dead. It's eternal. It will not fade away. It's a source of life. It lingers. It remains in the conscious. It remains in your heart. It's active. It can convince us. It can convict us. It can comfort us. It has the power to produce an effect in our lives. It just needs to be mixed with faith. The writer then goes on and says, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. I think the two edges are two purposes that he has in mind in, in this verse. One is that it pierces. God's word pierces. It penetrates. It cuts deep into the innermost parts of our being. It exposes. It reveals. Nothing is hidden. And it's not so that God can see what's in our hearts. It's so that we can see what's in our hearts. And once it's revealed, once we see there, then God's word does. The second part is that it judges. It assesses. It evaluates. It calls out insincerity and self-deception. It detects and discerns our thoughts and intentions. Doubts and hidden sins are called out and revealed for what they truly are. God's word lets us know if what we're doing is wrong or right, or if we're on the wrong track or the right track. But that track or that path isn't necessarily to a place. It's to a person. And you know, we were singing about it earlier. Because you look what in the two verses later in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, it says, Therefore, since we have a high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy, and find grace to help in the time of need. Essentially what he's saying is it's all about Jesus. I mean, for us, I mean, on Sunday mornings, we just don't come to church on Sunday because that's what you do. We don't stand up and sit down and sing songs because that's what you do. We don't put money in the offering plate because that's what you do. You know, we don't listen to somebody yak at you for a half an hour. We're here because of Jesus. And, and that sounds so simple, but it's ultimately so profound. Because so many people have lost the forest because of the trees, because they get caught up in all the side stuff. 
so the, the writer of Hebrews was encouraging these first century believers to stay true to Jesus. And, and the application I just want to give to you guys is that probably each and every one of us has something that causes us doubt or we have some kind of struggle that makes us wonder, you know, is God trustworthy? And, and it may not be pervasive, but maybe just this nagging thought. And what bugs me may not bug you. I mean, it may be something as simple as maybe you feel like your prayers aren't they're just bouncing off the ceiling. Maybe you feel that God's on the dark side of the moon. Uh, maybe you're dealing with a personal tragedy, or you just look in general around the world and, and all the, the, the trials and tribulations that are going on, and you wonder, where's, where's God in all this? Maybe you've been wounded by a fellow believer, and you know that's not what should happen, but somehow it did. Or maybe you've been in ministry for many, many years, and you wonder, where's the fruit? So there may be reasons to doubt, but I just want to encourage you is just stay true to God. Get in God's word and let God's word point you to Jesus, just like the writer of Hebrews was pointing those people to Jesus. He's our great high priest. He's our sacrifice. He's our God. He's our Savior. He's someone who stands with us. He's, he's our mediator. He sympathizes with us. He's been through trials. He knows what it's like. And ultimately, he's our king. So what I'd like to do now is ask Christina if she could queue up a video for you. And I hope this video encourages you. It shows you a, a link between the Bible and Jesus. And I hope that it encourages you to get more and more into God's Word and to maybe approach it in a fresh light. So Christina.
Ain't that a neat summary? It's hard to top that. The theme of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus over the prophets, over Moses, over the Old Covenant. And its purpose was to encourage those first century believers to stay true to Jesus. The, theme of the, the overall theme of the Bible is God's great story of redemption for mankind. And its purpose is to point us to Jesus. God's word can't help us if we don't read it. If you're a follower of Jesus and you read your Bible on a regular basis, let me encourage you to keep on, keep on, keep it on. If you're a believer and you've been lax in reading your Bible, I hope you don't feel condemned today. I hope uh, maybe you've been prodded to make it a daily part of your routine. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me tell you about some good news. God loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross for your sins and my sins. We're all sinners. Whether little sins or big sins, it's all sin. And it's all violation of God's law. And the punishment for that is eternal separation from God. And Jesus came to fix that problem. He can either pay for our sins or we can either pay for our own. We can trust him by faith. Grace says or excuse me, Ephesians says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Is that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast? You can't earn salvation. You can't merit it based upon your being rich or intelligent or have a great family name. It's just a gift. If I were to offer you a gift, it's not yours until you take it. And God's offering that gift to all of us. So by faith, you can receive that gift. You can pray to Jesus to come into your life, to forgive your sins, and to rule and reign in your life. Let me just close in prayer here, and as the worship team comes forward, and uh, the Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time to talk to your people. I pray that you've been exalted, you've been revealed through your word. I pray that People will be encouraged to look at your word in a fresh light, that they would hunger and thirst for your word. Lord, I just pray that we would be the people you want us to be, that we would be advancing your kingdom. Lord, it's not about us, it's all about you. And one day we're all going to stand before you. And Lord, I just pray that uh, our love for you is what motivates everything that we do. I just give you thanks, and I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.